<clears throat> we'll read beginning with verse 11 up to verse 14, although remember what I have said before, that that's starting in the middle of a sentence. The sentence itself begins in verse 3. However, we will begin from verse 11, this little paragraph that uh, almost all our versions have, beginning with verse 11. And it's talking about the part that we benefit from the person of our Lord Jesus Christ in his salvation. The Bible says there, in him, referring to Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You will notice that the title of my sermon this morning is In Praise of God the Son. In Praise of God the Son. This is because we are only going to look at verse 12 that says, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now, in case you missed it, what we have in this one sentence of the Apostle Paul is how God has worked out the richness of his salvation to us as undeserving sinners. That, first of all, there is a role that the Father has played, and then there is a role that the Son has played, and then there is a role that the Holy Spirit has played. And at the end of the role of each one of them, you have this doxology, this anthem of praise. So, for instance, with respect to the Father, we find this in, um, beginning with verse 3, we find it a little later on in verse 6. So we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he begins to tell us something of how he has done it. Even as he chose us in him. We read in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. And then that section ends in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
So a few months ago, I preached a sermon entitled, In Praise of God the Father. And it was based on those words in verse 6. Well, beginning with verse 7, the Apostle Paul begins to deal with what God has done to save us in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence those words at the beginning of uh, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And that is now talking about the role of the Son. Well, that continues all the way to verse 12. We saw in verse 11 how now through him we have obtained an inheritance. He's done it all. He has died. Remember I used the example of my own dad. Having died, I inherit that which he has passed on to me. He's died. He shed his blood, referring to Jesus Christ now, and therefore we simply inherit that which he has paid for in his death. And the apostle, having said that, ends by saying that um, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Of whose glory? Of Christ himself. So what we're really looking at today is uh, the fact that if we have really appreciated our salvation as the Bible teaches it, we should be as individuals totally overwhelmed with gratitude to God. Gratitude to God the Father, gratitude to God the Son, which we are looking at now, and then hopefully not too long from now, in verse 14, we shall see that it will be to the praise of his glory, and this time it is to the Holy Spirit. To the Holy Spirit. What should touch us even more with respect to the Son is when we consider what it cost him to bring us salvation. Now, in a sense, it, it also cost the Father because as we are told there in uh, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, he gave us his own beloved son. It was a great price. But today, we're looking at what it cost him, Jesus Christ himself, as he began to make his way to the cross to pay with his own life's blood for our salvation. Surely, when we think about it, we should be overwhelmed with gratitude. If there's anything that we should thank God for with respect to our salvation, it is this, that we finally have hope. We finally have 
hope. We have a sure hope. And that's the word that the Apostle Paul introduces in verse 12. He says there, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, who were the first to hope in Christ, friends, we must never take our hope for granted because it is the one ingredient that is absolutely missing in terms of uh, the non-Christian world. It is the absence of this hope. I've never forgotten once being on a flight and sitting next to me was a Muslim. And, uh, you know, Muslims are very strict on their times of worship. So at a particular time in the midst of the flight, my, my next-door neighbor on the flight left and uh, was gone for, for quite a while. And uh, when he came back, I noticed he actually had a mat, which he now placed in the overhead cabin. And then he sat next to me, and he began going through some beads. So finally, I thought, you know, let me strike up a conversation. So I let him know that I was a Christian and I was interested in what he had just done. So he said, well, it's, it was the hour of prayer. So I went uh, to pray. And as we were talking, I asked him the co simple question. If anything went wrong and this flight was to crash, would he go to paradise? And his answer was, I'm not sure, nobody can be sure. Everything depends on the grace of God on that day. Well, I said to him, I am sure. If I died, I would go to heaven. And his immediate response was, no, 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 nobody can be sure. And again, it just brought home to me that he is somebody who is so strict with his religion that at a particular hour in the flight, he, he goes to say his prayers. He's still not sure, despite his strict religion. And here I am, enjoying my time on the flight, and I know, and I know for sure, that the moment my heart stops beating, I'm being received by God in heaven. Well, that's what hope is. By definition, hope is this positive anticipation. Now, I'm adding the word positive because you can anticipate death, and that's not very positive, and so you cannot speak of it in terms of I am hoping to die if, for instance, you are under a death penalty. So it's a positive anticipation. It is a confident expectation. It is the phrase, I know. It is an optimistic prospect. And that is true concerning those of us who are true believers. When we are thinking in terms of the future, we can say, I know, I know for certain that this is going to be the ultimate 
outcome of my life. Now, it goes beyond the immediate future. Because in terms of immediate activities, even non-Christians can have hope in that sense. If you say to children that are sitting for grade 7 exams or grade 9 exams, or some of you it might be grade 12 exams or the end of year exams, wherever you are, and someone says to you, will, will you pass your exams that are coming up? You are likely to say, I am hopeful that I'll pass these exams. Anybody can say that, having put in quite some time in terms of uh, studying. Or with respect to marriage, those who are already in courtship and they are putting money already together for the wedding day and they've booked this hall and they've booked their suits and their wedding dresses and everything else. If you were to meet them a day or two before their wedding and ask them, they'll tell you, I am hopeful, 100% hopeful that um, come Sunday, I will be at my honeymoon, and so forth. They, they can speak in those terms. But when the Apostle Paul here is speaking about those who um, were first to hope in Christ, he's speaking about the rest of life altogether. He's speaking all the way to death. He's speaking all the way to the judgment day when each one of us must finally stand before Almighty God. He's speaking about us, where we will finally be forever and ever and ever. Are you hopeful? Outside Christ, there is no hope. Absolutely no hope. Zero. There's only an anticipation that I will die and then judgment. Because we all have consciences. Even the so-called atheist knows that somehow I have to give an account for the wrong things I have done. That's why I feel bad about it. Because I have a conscience. But those of us who are willing to be honest beyond being atheists, we say, if God gave me a conscience, he's an intelligent being. It's because he wants me to be warned ahead of time that that which I have done which is wrong, I am going to have to pay for it. And because of that, therefore, there is nothing left but a fearful expectation of being thrown into hellfire forever. Forever. May I suggest to you that that is one reason why a lot of individuals become Christians during their teenage years. A lot of people. You can ask any assorted group of believers said to them, how many of you became Christians between the age of, say, 13 and 14 up to perhaps the age of 20, and you find that the majority it is during that period? Why? 
was because of the body clock. When you are very young, you, you simply parrot what your parents are saying and doing. That's all you do. And somewhere before your teenage years, you begin to, to ask questions. Uh, why do we go to church when our neighbors don't go to church? Why do we sing songs at church? Why was Jesus born from a virgin? Why did this and why? We've got a lot of questions. And hopefully, we've got parents who will take time to answer those questions. But it's when we enter our teenage years that we then begin to ask ourselves questions. Questions like, what is life? Why am I here? Why? Where is life going? And especially if you're going through a difficult time, perhaps you've lost your father and your mother, and, and, and the people around you are not being very kind to you. Or perhaps you are in some teenage love affair and, and, and your, your boyfriend or girlfriend abandons you for somebody else. And you go into a depression. You begin to ask those same questions. Why should I continue living? What is life all about? Where is everything going? And often, you find that the world cannot give you an answer that satisfies you. It forces you to go back to the Bible that you, you, you used to read, or at least your parents used to read to you as a bedtime story to, to get you to go and sleep, and, and so on and so forth. You start getting back to the, for, for solid answers. And especially when in your honest moments you know that if I die, I'm not ready to meet my maker. Often it is at that point that you seek the Lord and find him. Many young people do so primarily because at that point they want to go into adulthood with hope, with real hope, with some solidity under their feet. They want to have real joy in their hearts, not the joy of drunkenness one night and then the following day you have a hangover. No, but a joy that is real, a joy that is lasting, a joy that defies all the disappointments that friends bring into one's life. And many of them find it in Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he says, so that we who were the first, let me use the phrase, to find our hope in Christ. To find our hope in Christ. Well, we've already noticed this with respect to God the Father. Because with respect to God the Father, we noticed that everything he was doing was in Christ. Everything. Let's go back to those earlier verses. 
verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So whichever way it is, ultimately, our hope, though all this is done by God the Father, our hope is in Christ. All the blessings, what we call here every spiritual blessing that comes from the Father comes to us in Christ. Therefore, all our hope is in Him. Well, the Apostle Paul has gone further, hasn't he? He's not just dealing with the, the father is going on to speak about the son. And the son blesses us because he has atoned for our sins. He has purchased our forgiveness. He's purchased our forgiveness through his blood. That's what we saw in verse 7. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It's guaranteed. He's purchased my salvation. The entire package of it. He has therefore acquired for me a full and free forgiveness for all my sins, all my sins, however dark and red and black they might be. All my sins have been paid for. And therefore, his plans will be fulfilled in me. Hence, part of those plans being to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, I will participate in that you uniting of the whole cosmos, of the whole of creation, being united, reconciled back to God, my maker. I will have a part of that. And in fact, a part of that has already begun to take place in me. And that's what he meant in verse 11 when he says, we have obtained an inheritance. We've already begun to experience something of it. We're already beginning to, to rejoice in that reality. There is a lot that is still remaining, but we have begun to enjoy what is being called here something of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Friends, that's a great hope. When I was speaking to um, my next door neighbor on the plane, and I'm saying that 
I know that if I die, I'm going to heaven. That wasn't just a calculated thing. It's, it's the peace and the joy that I've already begun to experience. It's the hope that is an experiential hope. I know in whom I have believed. There is a yea and a man in my own heart. And as we shall go on to see very shortly, it is given to me by the mediation of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God himself who is in my heart who is doing What a privileged people we are, friends. Can you imagine if you are the only Christian in your family? If you're the only Christian, this is one thing you have that all your other siblings don't have. Hope. Hope. They don't have it, but you do. If you're the only Christian in your classroom, there's one thing you have that nobody else has. Hope. This hope. You have it. Nobody else has. Even if they are churchgoers. If they've never known what it means to repent of sin and put their trust in Christ, they don't have hope. You have it. If you are the only Christian in your workplace, in your office, among so many other people, feel sorry for everyone else. Feel sorry for them. They don't have hope. But you have it. What a privileged person you are. That's why in the Bible, hope is one of three queen graces. Three. The top three. Faith, hope, and love. Now, yeah, the greatest is love. But right under it is faith and hope. It hangs right there at the top. Because it means a lot to us as human beings. It means a lot. Do you know that people who commit suicide, the thing that makes them finally commit suicide is this. No hope. No hope. In other words, why keep on living? They've processed everything in their thinking. And they've concluded it's better to just die. Just die. The lack of hope. But even individuals who don't go that far in terms of taking their own lives or at least attempting to, it is a lot of people live through life depressed. And I mean it, depressed. Life is gloomy. They've got no joy in their hearts. People have tried to say to them, come on, be happy. Life can't be all that bad. 
but they just don't have this solidity. They, they don't have a song on their hearts. They don't have a spring in their steps. They just don't have it. And often, it's because they are real thinkers. They are real thinkers. They are asking themselves the question, what's the point? Like Ecclesiastes, you know, Solomon, those questions he kept raising through the book of Ecclesiastes. What's the point of being educated, getting a job, making money, buying a good car and, and a, a putting up a good house and so on. And then all these things. Then I die. And then I spend the rest of my life burning in hell. What's the point? And the things that I worked for, my children come along, they sell, and they blow through an overnight party. Finished. Why live if that's all there is to life? Becomes depressing. Especially when you are young, a teenager, and you're thinking life is great, and then your friend in class dies in a car accident. Completely snuffed off. And then you are there at the funeral. And you are peeping in the coffin and you are saying, that could have been me. That, just like that. That's life. Gone. And perhaps you now go to the, to the burial site. And you see on all these gravestones, all these, born 1965, died. 1972. There's a, a sister or cousin, really, but you know, in Africa, she's my sister. We, we were together at the funeral at the burial site, and she saw a gravestone with her name on it her first name, her second name, and her surname. Now, she was named after her grandmother, so that's the name that was there. But I remember she said to me afterwards, yeah, I sweated quite a bit to realize that one day, and she's right, one day there will be a grave with my name on it and it will be me who will be down there. That's shocking. Because it raises the questions then what is the point of living? It can be quite depressing. But you know, when you have hope, especially a hope that is beyond time, that is beyond the grave, a hope that includes heaven, it defies even the worst experiences on earth. And I want to assure you, Christians are not exempt from the worst experiences on earth. Christians also lose employment. Christians 
also lose their health. Christians also lose property. Christians lose loved ones. Christians also die. Christians go through all those things. Let me add, there's something else that they go through that you don't go through, and it is this persecution. They get persecuted for their Christian faith. Look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in this life only, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Of all people. Well, because apart from everything that everyone else suffers, throw in also persecution. We are often hunted like wild animals. People deliberately want to tear our reputation asunder, despite knowing that we are individuals who are faithful in what we are doing. They come up with all kinds of stories in order to smear dirt upon our names and so forth, all because we are God's people. But thankfully, we have a hope that can smile at all that. Knowing very well that try what the world wants to do with us, a time comes when we escape their clutches through death and its glory, glory, glory after that. I've already said that this hope is one that is not wishful thinking. Thankfully, it is experiential. It is experienced through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's just quickly go to, to Romans 15, 5 first, Romans 5, and then I will want us to go to, back to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians. Romans 5. It begins by saying, therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, remember what we talked about, purchased completely by the redemption of Christ on the cross by the forgiveness of sins. So this justified by faith is referring to us being forgiven and us being declared righteous by God. Okay, so it's in the pocket already. We have been justified by faith. We're not waiting and hoping that perhaps after we die, God might weigh good things against bad things. No, it's already been given. It's inherited, as we saw last time. Because of this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God. There's no need for us to begin worrying that perhaps when we meet him on the judgment day, he will be this angry, wrathful God wanting to throw us into hell. No, we have peace with him. We are reconciled to him. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And listen to this. And we rejoice 
in hope of the glory of God. I want you don't miss that rejoicing because I'll come to it in a moment. This rejoicing in hope. It's very, very real. There is a joy that the world knows nothing about which we thrive in. This joy in hope of the glory of God. And that glory of God is referring to the ultimate. When we will share in his glory. When everything that he has promised is now ours. All the spiritual blessings in Christ. When we are blameless, 100%. When we'll be able to love him with an unseeing heart. Fulfilled, all our aspirations fulfilled in Christ. We rejoice now in that hope. Look at the suffering, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces more hope. Notice that. As we are being sanctified, as we are becoming more and more godly, somehow it is convincing us more and more that he who has begun this good work in me will complete it on that final day. It adds more hope to our Christian lives. And then this hope does not put us to shame. Why? This is the point I was making. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit of God in us overwhelms us at an experiential level with God's love for us. And especially when you're going through trials, it's as though he comes and just hugs us. And we lie upon his shoulder. It's enough for us. All this full and perfect peace. All this transport, all divine. In a love which cannot cease. I am his, and he is mine. Later on, in Ephesians chapter 1, after this entire sentence, the Apostle Paul enters into a prayer. And this prayer has one request. There are many requests in there, but I want to assure you, that ultimately it's just one, and it is this, that you may know this same hope. Not that you don't know it, but it's really saying that you may have a deeper appreciation of this hope. Let me quickly read it. I won't read the whole prayer because it's uh, quite a few verses, but just the first part. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and of your love to all the saints. Okay, so remember the, the twin graces, faith, love. He skipped hope. He hasn't. Listen to this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit. Notice the one who mediates the Spirit, 
the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, why? There it is, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And what is that? Listen to this. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And on and on and on he goes. He's basically saying that's the one thing I'm praying about. That the spirit of God may increase in your soul this sense of the solid hope that is yours, which defies all circumstances, defies all the suffering, this de defies all the deprivations, defies all the trials, and still makes you joyful. Truly joyful. Deeply joyful. That even your enemies cannot understand how, in the light of all they are doing against you, you are singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we've been there 10,000 years, We'll have no less days to sing your praises. Lord, hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's a joy the world cannot take away. Brethren, let me quickly close. After this survey of what we hope for in Christ... It only makes sense, isn't it, that we should want to go back to him and say, thank you, thank you. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Might say, Lord, may you be glorified in my life. May I be but a doormat on which you clean your feet. May I be but a trumpet through which the Holy Spirit will produce the sounds of praise to you. May I be as holy as any ransomed sinner can ever be. Even if the world laughs at me, Lord, because of what you have done. Now quickly, one small thing that I need to get out of the way. As I was preparing for this sermon, commentators were pulling out their hair about this we who were the first to hope in Christ, especially because verse 13 goes on to say, in him you also. So, who are the we and who are the you also? Some of them were thinking that the we is the Jews. So we Jews who were the first to hope in Christ. And then you Gentiles who have now come to him. 
Let me quickly answer this and move on. I'm doing it simply because, you know, that don't want to look like I've, I've run away from an obvious difficulty. Um, first of all, the Greek word that is used there um, is actually a word that in English is translated by four to five words. So that phrase, the first to hope, the first to hope is actually just one phrase in Greek. Just one phrase. And uh, it is the phrase uh, proelipso. Now, I'll divide it into two so that it doesn't sound like tongues. The first part is pro, which is before. So that's easy for all of us to catch. The second part is actually elpis. Except in this case, it's elpizo, because of the tense. But actually, it's elpis, which is the phrase hope. So it is one word that has before hope. Before hope. So translators into English have to try and improvise. What does this before hope mean? Is it you before others or you before time in terms of earlier time-wise they obviously cannot finally make up their minds and that's the reason why it remains as vague as it is there however to think that paul is suggesting jews in verse 12 and then Gentiles in verse 13, doesn't make sense because the we began in verse 3. They began from there when he was saying, who has blessed us in Christ, even as he chose us in him, he predestined us, and so on. In him we have redemption, and on and on. Verse 11 in him we have obtained. Now, to suggest that, okay, all that is about the Jews, and then for the Gentiles, it's uh, now that they've come to hear the gospel, they've believed and they've been sealed, is a bit of an oddity. All of us, when we began, we assumed that we were elected, we were adopted, we were predestined, we have received forgiveness, we have uh, been redeemed, we, we included ourselves. So to come and be told afterwards, uh, sorry, you know, excuse us, it's us Jews, would be quite uh, an anticlimax. I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. What is he doing? It's fairly simple. He's still talking about everybody else in verse 12. When he goes to say you in verse 13, it is purely a temporal you to achieve the inclusion of the people, the very people he's writing to. Who are they? Well, we go back to verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, they are the you that he's talking about. 
and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In fact, in verse 2, he uses the you. Grace to you from God our Father and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the you are the Ephesians. Those that have now come to faith in Christ who are the fruit of his own evangelistic activities which, by the way, uh, we could have seen when we were looking at the map of Turkey. Ephesus is in today's Turkey. It was the capital of the province of uh, Asia in those days. And Asia and Turkey were almost anonymous, just that it was a little bigger than Turkey is, or vice versa. No, it's a little smaller than Turkey. Turkey has a little more territory to itself. So it's them that he's saying. So basically, if I could try and put it this way, this is what he's saying. He's saying, so that we who were the first to open Christ, in other words, who came in before you, might be to the praise of his glory in the sense that even now we ought to be individuals who are praising him, glorifying him through our lips, through our lives, through everything because of what he has done. We came in ahead of you and our lives have been but a living sacrifice to his glory who hoped before. In other words, before in time with respect to you and before you. Now, he's making the point in verse 13, you've joined us. That's basically his point. You have now joined us. And that's the reason why soon after he says you, he quickly goes back again into us. Let me show it to you. Back to verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, okay, so it's the way now you've also come in, through listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, listen to this, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he's already back to us and we. All he's doing is to say, we have been enjoying this, the joy of sins forgiven, to the praise of his glory, we preceded you, we brought the gospel to you, you responded to us, the Spirit has also done to you what he did to us, so together we are now anticipating the guaranteed adoption. That is the fullness of the experience of adoption. Together, the Holy Spirit is doing this in us. So it's as simple as that. Don't start hiding between Jews and Gentiles because even in Ephesus, there were Jews and Gentiles in the church. Even before Paul reached Ephesus, he had come from Antioch. And Antioch was already a Gentile church. So to try and cut between Jews and Gentiles at this point, you are forcing into the text what isn't there. The main point is this, that us we are already rejoicing in hope. 
There is excitement in our souls. That's what brought us to you, to come and preach the gospel to you. You heard, you believed, and exactly what happened to us has now happened to you as well. So that together now, we are moving towards the consummation of our salvation in eternity after the day of judgment. The joy I had when my dad became a Christian reflects this. I became a Christian in 1979. After my elder sister became a Christian a year prior to me, well, a few months earlier. But three years later, my dad got converted. And the change that he went through, the, the excitement with which he brought us together, and then tried to be like, you know, the father now over the children, trying and teach us God's word. And there was a lot of heresy there. But you know, he's your father, so you sort of, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you, you avoid telling him now, that's error there, that's error. Hoping he will learn. So I began buying him books from the Christian bookstore so that he begins to clean his brain of all the erroneous thinking. But it was just the joy of knowing that my own dad has entered into the joy of this hope. I've never forgotten, in those days at Kusaka Baptist Church, we used to have what they called open sharing during uh, the Lord's Supper and taking the church to that verse that says this this old man uh, has uh, found something about salvation. I can't remember the exact phrasing. Uh, and I read it out and then I said, please rejoice with me. My dad has gotten saved. He now had this hope. He had this hope. And even all the way to the day he died, the peace, the confidence, as he lay there waiting for the cold hand of death to finally take life out of him. It was a blessed moment when he became lifeless and we prayed together to thank God for a life that will meet again on the other side. Because this hope is real. Taking long, brethren, let me close. May I suggest to you that this is the reason why it is important for a Christian to know doctrine and to know theology you can't survive on spiritual popcorns. You can't. You need to read solid Christian books that are going to teach you about election, about predestination, about adoption, 
about redemption, about reconciliation with God, and all these truths that the Apostle Paul has just been speaking about here. You need to read solid Christian books. We spend too much time on social media just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling one hour after another and then when trials come into our lives we are scampering for cover like any other people especially non-Christians. And they are full of complaints and complaints and complaints every day complaining about the police and complaining about tax and, and complaining about fuel and, and complaining about Zesco and co complaining about everything else. There's no joy in our hearts. There's no joy in our homes. There's, there's nothing to commend Christ to those who are around us. Nothing. It's because of barrenness in the brain. Listen to me. It is barrenness in the brain. You cannot have this glorious joy that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here without the Spirit of God and the truth of God. Later on, when we come to that prayer, you find it. That we might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And we have a bookshop here. We've got a library here. Surely, as a Christian, you should be putting aside time to read to dig deep into these truths so that when all hell breaks loose upon your soul, you will be saying, I've got a peace that I don't understand. That I don't understand in the midst of all this. And the Spirit of God will be, as it were, scooping those same truths that have been embedded in your soul, scooping them out and bringing them to the front of your own mind. Oh, brethren, let us make hay while the sun shines. Let me say it again. Let us make hay while the sun shines. And those of you who are parents, please teach your children doctrine. Teach your children theology. That they too might end up with a Christ-centered life. Teach them doctrine. They will need it. When they leave your home or when you die, they'll need it. Let's make sure that our homes are educational institutions. Teaching those that are coming behind us with solid Christian truths. Well, let me ask, am I speaking to someone here this morning? who continues to, to hang on to their sin, thinking, if I become a Christian, I will miss out on happiness, on joy. The words of Isaac, what's come to my mind here? Solid joys and lasting pleasure, none but Zion's children know. I often challenge unbelievers that way. 
when they hang on to their sin thinking that they will miss their joy, I say to them, who has crossed the road to share with the other about what they have? Clearly, I'm the one who's crossed the road. And I've not come to share with you so that you can become miserable. Uh-uh. Like I said to one of them, look at my face. Do, do I look miserable? <laughs> look at me. <laughs> Allah, I'm having a time of my life in Christ. That's why I've come to you, to share Christ with you, that you too might participate in the richest affair. That's really my plea. That's my plan. Because if each one of us comes to obtain this inheritance, to begin to eat something of its fruit in this land, the first fruits of it, all of us will want to say, Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, be glorified. We will want to live our lives for the praise of his glory. As my sermon says, in praise of God the Son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the rich feast that we have in Christ. Lord, when we think of what it cost him to make us who we are, his own life's blood, his death upon a cruel cross, and now here we are in a king's chamber, surrounded with table upon table, weighed down, with rich delicacies from heaven itself. Lord, who are we to participate in such a feast? Who are we? Father, help us. Help us, we pray, to glorify you and as we've learned today, to glorify your Son for what is done for us. It is in his name we pray. Amen.